0: The songs we've sung are ideally oriented as we've sung of the exaltation of Christ, of the humiliation of Christ, of His death to pay the cost of our sin and the glory that He now enjoys at the Father's right hand. In some sense, these songs have preached this message already and indeed preached the entire book of Hebrews for us. What joy is ours to sing them. And to know that we can come to our Savior, who is strong and kind. Who is all-powerful, and yet a God of love and grace. We come to Him, continuing to come to Him in prayer. As we come, Lord, before Your Word, we pray for the ministry of the Spirit. We ask, Father, that You would teach and instruct us who know Christ as Savior. That you would assure us of that truth, that we would continue to persevere in the faith, that we would not drift away from Christ, crucified, risen, ascended, exalted, and coming again. For those who know not Christ, we pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth. In these last words that we've sung, if we are lost, we can come to him. But if we are lost, ultimately he will come to us. Lord, we praise You for that truth, and we praise You for the reminder to all of us who know Christ as Savior, that it is You who have come to us. It is You who have found us as a lost sheep. And I pray that You would continue to work in this gathering here today to bring glory to Your name and help us to understand the Scriptures and to grow in their light. Through Christ I pray, amen. Looks can deceive. The two-time Emmy award-winning reality TV series Undercover Boss taps this truth. The show follows some high-level executives as they alter their appearance and they slip anonymously into the workplace of the businesses that they actually run. So let's say it's a man who starts a restaurant and it becomes a national chain and now he's the CEO Of this corporation and he works in some high-rise overlooking a major city from his beautiful office but he puts on a wig puts on a fake beard some grungy clothes and he gets a job flipping hamburgers in his business he owns the restaurant he is the CEO of the corporation But from all appearances, he's just a common Joe who's done pretty well to land a minimum wage job. Toward the end of the show, he reveals his true identity, does some good deed, and everybody smiles, and it's worth doing again, I guess. But looks can deceive. Sometimes a person is not exactly who they appear to be, and never was that more true than with Jesus of Nazareth. With Jesus, it's far more than a matter of hidden identity. How is anyone to make sense of the one true and living God, the eternal creator and sustainer of the universe, the God who is spirit everywhere present, taking on a human body and dying? How are we to make sense of it? The incarnation of the eternal Son of God, the enfleshment of the eternal Word, is a mind-blowing proposition that the Bible boldly proclaims. Through the centuries, the most capable of theologians have struggled mightily to make sense of the concept, and we obviously will as well. But some have tried to do so by suggesting that Jesus was not really a man. He just looked like one, kind of faked everybody out. The docetists proclaim that. Others claim that Jesus was God encased in glorified flesh, whatever that means. But that was their idea. It, 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 he, was, he was really not truly susceptible to weakness. Apollinarianism said that. Others have insisted that Jesus was only a man which is, as we know, in our setting right now, a complete, stunning dismissal of Hebrews chapter 1. If he's only a man, what sense do we make of this chapter? Who is Jesus? Who do you know him to be? This crucial question defines who you are, it defines how you live, and it defines where you will spend eternity. And the book of Hebrews is immensely helpful in steering us to the right understanding. I thank God for this book. We should thank Him, of course, for every book of Scripture, but this book is so crucial to our understanding of who Jesus is. It's not light reading. Let's say that up front. It takes some work and some diligence to understand who Jesus is, and we would expect nothing else. to that end, and we won't keep doing this, but one more time here today, I'd like to just summarize the message of the book to this point. We find in chapter 1 of Hebrews that the one true and living God is a talking God. Across the centuries of salvation history, God repeatedly reveals his life-giving, life-sustaining word through the mediating ministry of prophets. Prophets were individuals chosen by God to speak for Him to His people. Verse 2 of chapter 1, But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. The eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, is the very enfleshment of God's Word, the very enfleshment of God's message to His people. It's in the person, in the face of Jesus Christ. Well, who is this Son of God? according to verse 2 through 4 verses 2 through 4 he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe nothing exists apart from the son of god he's the very radiance of god's brilliance that is inseparable from the very essence of god as much as light is inseparable from the rays of the sun jesus is the son In the sense that he does everything that the Father does with the Father's authority. That's the idea of sonship that we find here in chapter 1. Now notice verse 3 of chapter 1. This latter part of the verse, 1-3, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a critical point, a crucial statement for our understanding of chapter 1. This is the backdrop. So if we read the chapter rightly, he sat down. The idea, the picture we should have in in our mind is of a king's enthronement. The son ascends to the throne and is now seated in the throne of his father doing what the father does. That's the picture that should overshadow all that we see here in chapter 1. So, in verses 5 through 13, the author selects now several Old Testament passages that the early church would have understood to find fulfillment in Jesus the Messiah. And notice here, the Psalms from which the author draws, then, in verses 5 through 13, are enthronement Psalms. They are Psalms that are talking about the enthronement of a king. These psalms are not talking about the birthday of the king. They're talking about the day on which he ascends to the throne and is seated there. Verse 3, Jesus is seated on the throne. So now this string of verses will support that idea. In verse 6, verse 5, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Again, the Old Testament context, the day in which the son ascends to the throne, he is begotten as the son, that is, as the one who does what the father does. Again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. Verse 6, when he brings the firstborn into the world hits us immediately from our Western standpoint to say, well, that's the day Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What's the context? Enthronement. And so in the Eastern world, firstborn did not always refer to who was born first, or the day of one's birth, but a position and a status, one of who is supreme. The firstborn is brought into the world. This world we define from chapter 2 as the world of God's realm. Not this world, but the world of the heavenly realm. We'll get to that in just a moment. That the firstborn in this sense of a son ascending the throne. So what is in view is the day Jesus sits on the Father's throne as the Son, equally functioning as he does. He is brought into the world, fight the world to come. And the proof that we're reading this the right way is the context of the Old Testament text that he gives to support this idea. Verses 8 and 9. Notice there, chapter 1, verse 8. Here we see, it at this point you're saying, oh, wait a minute, is, is, he, is he God or is he not? Notice verse 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This a reference to Jesus in his enthronement. You, God, your throne is forever and ever. Then verse 9, therefore God, your God. He is God and he is with God. It blows our mind. We cannot fully grasp it or understand it, but if we feed at the text, we take it for what it says. He is God, and he is with God. Now notice there in verse 8 also the word scepter. It's a scepter. That's the the stick that the king holds to say, I am the king. The scepter, a symbol of his power. The scepter. And notice in verse 9, anointing. The kings in the ancient world were anointed. Everything fits the enthronement idea. He is king of the universe, as God and with God. The climax comes in verse 13 of chapter 1, where we read that God says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That was a sort of John 3.16 for these first readers. The context, again, notice that Christ's ascension to the throne of the universe is what's in view in this entire chapter. So connect verse 3, one more thing, look at verse 3 in chapter 1. Verse 3 at the end, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Go to 2, five. for it is not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. This world to come, this heavenly realm, that's the real world. This is a real world too, but it's a different world. That real world, the sun reigns supreme. That is the point. In chapter 2 now, verses 1 through 4, we looked at this last week, that in light of this exalted Christ, Christian, follower of Jesus, do not drift away. Do not lose touch with Christ. He's to be at the center of our affections, at the center of our thoughts, at the very center of our worldview. Do not drift away from this message. So there's no question at this point where the author of Hebrews stands regarding the deity of Christ. The maker, the sustainer, the enthroned king of kings and lord of lords. God himself and with God as the son who does all that the father does. It is an exalted picture of Christ. But then there's this whole matter of Jesus as a man. And what are we to do with that? The author does not blush to say, forgive this crass analogy, but the owner of the company is the guy flipping burgers. It's the same one. You cannot say that he's not flipping burgers because he is, and you cannot say he's not the CEO because he is. So after the warning not to drift away from the exalted Jesus, who is God, very God, the author now plunges full length into the matter of Jesus' humanity and his earthly ministry as the final prophet and the savior of his people. This is utterly crucial to our understanding of who Jesus is and thus our understanding of who we are. To get Jesus right is of utmost importance. So we notice then in verses 5 through 9, as we plow on here today, the salvation, the exalted Son of God, suffered the humiliation of death for His people. This is a message to which we must cling and understand. Chapter 2, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Not to angels connects us back to 1, 13, and 14. The world to come, again, the realm where angels live and where Jesus entered as the ascendant, exalted conqueror of death. It is the world of heaven. That world is subjected not to angels, but to the exalted Christ. This reality brings to mind, then, to the author of Psalm 8, another text dealing with the reigning Christ, as he fulfills that text as the new Adam the exalted monarch of the universe. We have read it earlier, Vlad read it here this morning. It has been testified somewhere. I don't think he's lost as to where it is. He's just saying it's in the Bible. What is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection. Under his feet. In one sense, the passage refers to us. We are given authority in the world to bring it into subjection, to exercise dominion over it. When God created mankind, he gave us that dominion. And, God, and made in God's image, we are then crowned with glory and honor, unlike, say, the animal kingdom. But connect again, verses 7 and 8, with Psalm 110 in 113. In an ultimate way, then, Jesus has complete supremacy. He is the quintessential man where everything has been put in subject and under his feet, verse 8, in a way that is not true of anyone else. And this is what the author is pressing toward. Notice the second part there of verse 8 in his comment. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Do you get anywhere to this point in the book of Hebrews and say, well, there's some things Jesus doesn't rule. You say he is over everything. He is supreme beyond our understanding of what supreme means. But, verse 8, at present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We don't see it that way. So in a limited sense, this refers to mankind in general, but ultimately it is fulfilled in Jesus. After defeating death, Jesus ascended to heaven and the Father put everything in subjection to him. But it sure doesn't look that way from our perspective sometimes, does it? To use again the analogy... That guy at Flippenberger sure doesn't look like a CEO. And as we think about it further, we say, wait a minute, really? Jesus is sovereign over all things? Why then worldwide persecution of believers? Why do the followers of Christ keep dying? Jesus is supreme. The holiness that he lived the teaching of Jesus these are they're openly despised and rejected by our world war natural disasters governmental corruption abuse disease death prevail Jesus is sovereign he rules from king from heaven's throne christian We need to get this. Yes, He does. Yes, He does. He is the conquering King. His victory over death is the point. It proves that He has risen from the dead. He has ascended to heaven. He has poured out His Spirit. He has promised to come again. He is reigning today. And we must not be confused by what our world says What it thinks, what it does not do in response to Christ. The fact that this world refuses Christ's rule does not mean that it does not exist. The only issue is timing. Christ's rule over his kingdom has begun, but it awaits finalization. It is already in force, but it is not yet displayed to its fullness as God intends. And he patiently extends the gospel in grace to those who reject Christ until the day, until the final day. So if we would picture our undercover boss and say that here he is coming to work one day and the other employees begin to mock him, make fun of him, belittle him, they do not listen to what he's trying to accomplish, which he knows is the right thing. We can look at it and say, that's not the owner of the business. But he is. And When we look at this world and we see how it rejects Christ, we can say, how is it that he reigns? He does. It's just a matter of time. till this is ultimately revealed. Verse 9. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Namely, Jesus, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. We do not see Jesus physically, but we do perceive who He is. We do perceive that He does reign sovereignly. We recognize also His incarnation. That is, He took on a human body in addition to his deity. He didn't cease becoming God at that point, but he took on a body in addition to his deity. Thus, for a short time, he held a position inferior to angels who were stealing away the attention of the Hebrews from a right orientation to Christ. Not probably our deal, but it was their deal. And he says, see Jesus. We, in fact, do by faith see him. In distinction from the angelic beings, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. Why is that? What does verse 9 say? Why is it that he's crowned with glory and honor? It is because of the suffering of death. By God's grace, he tasted death for everyone. We connect this back to chapter 1 and verse 3. Remember, he made purification for sins. So in making purification for sin, in suffering death that way for everyone, he is now exalted as the risen Savior. So the ultimate evidence of Jesus' genuine humanity is what? The ultimate evidence is he died. He died a physical death. Suffering death in our place, however secured purification from sin for all who place their saving trust in Christ's sacrifice. The only way we can be forgiven the sentence of eternal death that we deserve is for an eternal being to die a physical death. How are you going to get that to work? An eternal being to die a physical death. That's exactly what Jesus did. And there's no other answer to it. He did this for everyone. I don't think we must limit that reference to the elect. There is some interest that every human being has in the death of Jesus. But ultimately, that death is effectual only for those God chooses to save. But on that point, we stop and we pause. And we look and lift our faces to the Lord. We sung that there at the end. If I am lost... Jesus will come to me. He seeks those who are lost. And it brings to us the question, again, I bring to you this morning, have you trusted Jesus' payment for your sin? He made purification for sin. Have you put your trust and your confidence in that work of Christ? The response that is called for is not merely an intellectual acknowledgement of what Jesus did, but a response that embraces him, that turns from sin, that is personal, that is trusting, that throws yourself upon what Christ has done in the stead of sinners. If you come to that place where it's not just what I know that he did, that he died to pay the cost of my sin, the punishment that I deserve. But I have placed my personal trust and faith in that work for me. By faith, I trust that it is for me. Only the Spirit of God can open your eyes to see that reality. But I pray that you would press toward it. When I am lost, he will come to me. He will come. Do you see yourself as lost? Do you see yourself as a sinner deserving that punishment? Do you realize that Christ's death alone could atone for your sin? Come to him. There is no other answer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. By making this sacrifice, by suffering death in the place of sinners, Jesus makes this atonement. But what is more, by suffering physically, Jesus displayed solidarity with his people. This is the emphasis now, verses 10-13. through Verse 10, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author's got no problem speaking of Jesus as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Here, the emphasis is on the Father as the creator and sustainer of the universe. In the one God of triune fellowship, this is very doable. And so, it is fitting, notice verse 10 again, who's it talking about? It's fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's the Father, in bringing many sons to glory, that's the people who trust Christ for salvation, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. By the way, good place to bring in here, the many sons to glory. We're not talking about just men, but we're talking about a concept. The concept of sonship in the ancient world is one of identification with, of authority from, of involvement with, as an inheritor, and involvement with the Father. So that's the sense here, speaking of all of us as those who so relate to Christ. He made, God made the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering. How do you read that? The founder, or we could say the champion, is the one who blazes the trail. The one who goes before and accomplishes something we could not. But he was made, Jesus was made perfect through suffering. Do you take this to be there was something missing in Jesus? He was imperfect. And suffering perfected him. Some have taken it, it seems, that way. In fact, some professing Christians believe that suffering is itself a means of purification. I always cringe when you see these depictions, you hear a report of the like of some group that is caring for the poor, and people are sleeping on the floor, and eating almost nothing, and have this routine each day of asceticism that is very, very difficult, and people praise all that's being done for the poor, I always kind of hold back and go, yeah, okay, but the other side of it is the people running this show believe that by suffering you're saved. By suffering you add grace. The only suffering needed for our salvation is Jesus Christ. So you can find it on Good Friday coming up here in April. There'll be people walking down the street in some place in this world that have whips that are cutting their backs open as they seek to imitate the the flogging of Jesus, thinking that somehow that's going to get them closer to God. If I suffer like Jesus suffered, I too will be perfected. Something of the idea. It's more complicated than that, but something of that idea. Now, let's get this straight. There was nothing imperfect in Jesus. Suffering did not complete some character flaw in him. Jesus was perfected in this sense, that his death completed his mission to save his people. His suffering perfected everything that he was doing. That is, it brought to completion the salvation plan through the ages. He became the champion of our salvation by dying for us. And how absurd, the unbeliever says. That man there hanging on that cross, dying, bleeding to death, is your champion? He lost. We know that he won. We know he's the victor because he defeated death by tasting it. And so we can rejoice, Christian, in his grace and kindness to us. God deemed this all fitting. For the sinless Savior to die. The righteous in the place of the unrighteous. In the sorrow of heart, that the Father felt in that hour was matched by the fittedness, the fitness, the rightness of this sacrificial act of love. Verse 11: For he who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. He who sanctifies, who's that? That's Jesus, the one who purifies. Chapter 1, verse 3. He who sanctifies, and those who are sanctified, who are those? Those who are made holy, those who trust Christ as Savior, all have one source. This actually reads, all out of one. And that's a confusing phrase. But I take this to mean it's a reference to Adam and Eve, pointing to our shared humanity. We, what he's saying here is, just as exalted as Christ is, he is equally man. He is a child of Adam, as you are, as I am. He's not ashamed, then, to call us brothers. Again, don't take this in a sense of literal brother, but not ashamed to identify with us. It speaks of Christ's solidarity with us in our humanity. Jesus humbled himself to share our humanity, to take it on. In a way, far beyond what an undercover boss needs to do to humble himself, to work in his own restaurant in the trenches, Jesus, in a way, far more significantly humbled himself, leaving heaven's glories to take on flesh and to be seen by no one as God. No one could have possibly fully understood Who he was, where he came from, and what he was doing on the day of Jesus' birth. Even Joseph and Mary, who had received revelation, struggled to perceive it. Looks can deceive. And this is a mighty deception. A little infant in a manger. The creator and the sustainer of the universe. So, he quotes the scriptures. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. We could look a long time at the, what he's doing here with Psalm 22, but this is the psalm that starts, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that finds fulfillment in Jesus and this psalm, Psalm 22, ends with singing. A singing in the congregation as God restores and saves and loves. And so the author finds here with that word, brothers, here is, in a sense, Jesus as the one who has defeated death, singing among us the praises of God. He identifies with us. And again, verse 13, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. We have here quotations from Isaiah 8. And the idea is that Jesus is the head of the new humanity, of those united by faith to him. So first, we are people who trust God. I will put my trust in God. He said the same as a man. Second, this puts us in God's family in solidarity with Jesus. Verse 13, behold I and the children God has given me. So Jesus shares our humanity. It gets deep. What he's doing here is pretty complicated, but let's just come up above it and say what he's saying is Jesus was a man. He was a man who suffered. He walked with us as a brother in one sense. He was among us. He was with us in suffering and with us in rejoicing in the presence of God. So we have the the exalted Christ and we have the humbled Christ. The God, very God, and man Very man, and we must hold them together and embrace these truths, not allowing one to break down our emphasis or understanding of the other. As the book unfolds, the author will draw out numerous implications of Jesus' humanity. And I don't want to get into all of that now, but just consider a few ideas as it gives us a taste for what is to come as we look to the remainder of the book. First of all, chief among them is that by taking on flesh, Jesus is able to suffer the actual penalty of our sin. The actual penalty. The physical death that we deserve for our sin, Christ Takes that and pays that cost. Ultimately, an animal could not do that. And God, who is spirit, could not suffer physical death in our place. Only as the God man, only as the Son of the one true triune God took on flesh, could genuine atonement be made for our sin. This is unique. In the story of religions, for one to die our true death, to pay for the purification of our sin as God and man. And the proper response, I think, for us as we think of the humanity of Christ is not to belittle or downplay his deity, but to stand on holy ground in awe. There could be no other answer. Let the earth be silent before him. Secondly, another implication is that Jesus understands and sympathizes with our weaknesses and our suffering. The author will bring this out more fully later, but indeed even next week, Lord willing, as we move on. that Jesus walks with his people in solidarity as we face, first of all, temptation to sin. He did not sin, but he understands temptation. He's not a clueless God who has no idea why we find lust or greed or hatred or revenge or fear or the like so tempting. And we're not like God when we can't understand why people are tempted. Even if it's not the temptation that we face. Jesus understands the temptation. He drained it. Secondly, Jesus walks with his people in solidarity as we face suffering. So not only in the temptation of sin, but also in suffering itself. Jesus did not experience every type of suffering that you do and that I do, specifically, experientially. But Jesus did experience deeper suffering than we will ever know. That's helpful to me. Is it helpful to you? He is man, he knows suffering that is deeper than you're ever going to experience. Did he know rejection and opposition? Yes, in a way we can't even understand. He experienced abandonment by his closest friends at the worst of times. Indeed, by his own family. As he hangs on the cross, it would, everybody, brothers would come around and take mom and take her home and care for her. On the cross, he's saying to John, will you take care of her? You understand her. My brothers don't. Not yet. the most torturous death imaginable. And ultimately, Psalm 22, that separation from the Father on the cross, why have you forsaken me? He prayed that prayer that we as his people would never have to. I will never leave you Or forsake you. But Jesus prayed that. Cried that. Why have you forsaken me? In his death. Are you struggling with disease? Are you facing heartache so deep you're not honestly sure how you're going to live through the week? Does discouragement or loneliness run so deep that you're tempted to run away? Jesus understands. He gets it. That does not eliminate your pain. But can you imagine the horror if in the midst of our suffering all we could do was to appeal to a God who had utterly no experience of suffering? What help is that? We must pray for one another and we must pray to the Lord as we pour out our burdens upon the one who does understand. Thirdly, the exaltation of Jesus came in consequence of his suffering. His exaltation came in consequence of his suffering. There was a direct connection. During this time of delay, when Christ reigns now, but not in the fullness that will come in this interim, we are called to suffer. Opposition for Christ, but also the ravages of a sinful world and a cursed planet. We need to come to understand as his followers, it's suffering first, it's glory to follow. It's this life now with its struggle, it's the life to come that Jesus won for his people. And in that I rest and trust. Philippians 2, 8 and 9, Jesus humbled himself to the point of the cross to take on that shameful death for us. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. The two are connected together. And the scriptures remind us that any suffering that we endure for the glory of God, for his name, will redound in glory in the ages to come. We'll never, God will never be in our debt. Looks can deceive Jesus hanging dead on a Roman cross, that's going to deceive some people. Christians despised and rejected by our world and suffering the ravages of a fallen planet, that's going to deceive. But let us, as Christ's followers, as the ascended reigning Christ's followers, may we not forget that glory awaits for our champions submitted to death, in order to defeat it and ascend it to the throne of the universe in order to come again and to bring us to glory. He rules today. He will come again. So let us not drift away from the reality that we do not see, but let us press forward in faith in what we know is to come. There's an empty tomb. There's a risen Savior He's coming again, and our future is with Him in glory. Hold to it, Christian. Hold to it hard. And may He hold us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for what you've done. And we do ask that you'd hold us fast, that you would secure us in the faith, for those who know you, that you would allow us to continue to cling to the truth that we know of Christ's deity, and exaltation in Christ's humanity and suffering and understanding and sacrifice for us. Thank you for these truths that we are reminded of here in this profound book. Help us to understand it, to bend our minds to it, to grow in its light. I pray that you would continue to deepen us as an assembly as we cling to Jesus. And again, for those who know him not, may these words point to the ascended and glorious Savior. And may you open eyes to see that truth. Through Jesus we pray. Amen.